And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be. Where you are on this rotating globe, welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when we try to cover the things that normally don't get covered in the 24-7 news cycle of mainstream and alternative and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all that other news out there. I mean, it's a wonder that anybody can focus on anything because we are literally drowning from an overload of too much stuff. So kick back and for the next three hours, you're going to hear something that you should be seeing on the mainstream news. And you're not going to see it for a while because we're we're kind of building up to this point. There is a crescendo coming. There is a climax. There is an, a stunning set of revelations. And part of what I think is delaying the inevitable is that those folks in charge of kind of our reality haven't yet quite figured out how to tell us that an awful lot of what we think we know and have been encouraged to think we know is plain dead wrong. Starting with, how old is humanity? How, how long have we been, not just on this Earth, but other Earths, other planets, other places, have we solely been nurtured in this nursery through the you know random winds of evolution, which is the standard mainstream uh, theory? Or is our story, our soap opera, our incredible history, so much more fantabulous and so much longer than anyone has dared to dream for many, many, many years? And when they do, they are viciously, and I use that term very specifically, viciously stamped out like that old joke about uh, burning ducks. Well, tonight we're going to talk about and talk with a researcher who is definitely thinking outside the box and who has independently discovered some of the fundamental things about who we are and how old we are, which is in total resonance with my uh, dear departed friend Carl Monk, who I had wanted to get on the show, and he made it very difficult because he didn't engage in email or social media. He relied on mail, literally, you know, hard copy, mail, envelopes, stamps. Remember stamps? Anyway, uh, Charlie is no longer with us. And uh, when I last checked, his daughter was trying to come up the curve of all his research, which fortunately has been preserved. Well, as you all know, I'm a great believer in independent discovery, independent research, separate entities coming together on a particular project, and they come up with the same answers the same solutions. Well, tonight, you're going to hear from my guest, Charlie Zeese, that he has independently confirmed a number of things that many decades ago, um, Carl Monk pioneered. And it will lead to other things that Charlie will discover when we get to that part of the show. And I kind of uh, lay on him some of the really interesting global phenomenology of what, what Carl had found. Before we get there, however, and I know we have new members of the audience, I want to kind of give you a brief few-second tutorial on how to find a critical part of The Other Side of Midnight, which is the section of the show we call Radio with Pictures. What you want to do is you want to go to our URL, theothersideofmidnight.com. You want to click on tonight's banner, which says, Found More Hyperdimensional Secrets Carefully Encoded in Earth's Most Ancient Ruins with our guest there prominently displayed, Charlie Zeiss. And if you click on that banner, that will take you to Charlie's guest page, right under the duplicate of the banner on the guest page, which is at the top. You will find uh, uh, a big line which says to listen to the show. Don't worry about that. That's in case you want to listen to the show. Under that, it says guest page, and under that, it says fast links to items with my name, Charlie's, And Charlie has two pages tonight in Radio with Pictures. So when we get to the transition, we'll tell everybody, okay, move to page two. Anyway, click on my items. Click on Richard there, and it will take you directly to um, the the, uh, items in my section. 
some news and some forecasting. So uh, before we get to Charlie, let me give you some background. As you know, um, a few days ago on, on Monday, actually, technically, it was anticipated, previewed uh, in a surprise uh, revelation on Monday at the White House. The Webb Space Telescope, after six months of commissioning, after launch successfully on uh, December 25th last year, Christmas Day, early, early, early Christmas morning. It is now on station. Every instrument has been tuned. The mirrors and all the other uh, mechanical appurtenances are working, and it is in fabulous shape to give us the beginnings of a stunning amount of literally unprecedented data on who the hell we are, what we're doing in this place, and what might be coming up in the future. So item number one is the James Webb Space Telescope link, which takes you directly to the pictures, the first five full-color infrared images from Webb, which basically range the category of all the things, well, most of the things that they're going to be looking at over the next, uh, I've heard estimates now up to 20 years. Um, long before then, of course, this telescope will have been superseded by multiple new generations, which will make this telescope look kind of quaint in that future time. But for now, it is the largest space telescope ever set into orbit. It is living tonight in a halo orbit about a million miles behind the Earth, away from the sun. We have direct line of sight. Um, some of the images which took weeks and months for Hubble to achieve with long, long, long exposures that had to be interrupted because remember, Hubble is in a low Earth orbit whipping around the Earth roughly every 90 minutes. So if you're looking at something in space and taking a time exposure, you can only do it when the object is above the horizon from where you are in orbit. And since it takes 90 minutes for Webb to go, Webb, for Hubble, see, I keep doing that near reverse. It's really weird. Something wrong with my brain. Okay. Anyway, it takes Hubble 90 minutes to go around in low Earth orbit. So if you're taking a deep exposure of deep, 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 deep space, looking for galaxies back toward the beginning of the Big Bang, you can only do it for about 40 minutes. And then you got to wait because it takes that long, 40, 45 minutes, to come around again so that the object that you're photographing is above the Earth's horizon and you begin another exposure. And you stack these exposures in the computer, one over the other, over the other, over the other, and ultimately it took them hundreds of hours to do the ultra-deep field. Well, Webb, the other afternoon, no, I think it was morning. They said it was before breakfast. 12 hours, and they had a deep field image deeper than the deepest field from Hubble. 12 hours, as opposed to weeks. So a lot of the really amazing stuff that we're going to talk about tomorrow night, and I will explain in detail in a little while how tomorrow night is different than I had kind of planned it, um, is going to be... It, kind of looking at Webb from an historical perspective. Have we been here? Have we done this before as a culture, as Americans? And the fact is, yes, with stunning results. But they were kicked off in a little different manner than Webb, and we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to go through these images, and I'm going to have the time, three hours tomorrow night, to show you with the images all of the stunning, amazing new stuff which is going to come pouring out of the Webb Space Telescope at a rate which is like, as uh, the cliche goes, drinking from a fire hose. 12 hours for a deep field image of galaxies over 4.8 billion uh, light years away. And actually, the, the deepest that... Uh, that Webb can go is like 13.6, something like that, in a universe that's supposedly 13.8 billion years old. Anyway, um, that's all for tomorrow night. And I have to warn you that it's not going to be exactly as I planned. 
when I saw the quality of the images, in particular, when I saw the quality of the uh, spectroscopic data from one of the so-called exoplanets orbiting a star a little over 1,100 light years away called WASP-96b. Don't you love where they get these names? Anyway, I thought, ah, I know who to call. So I called uh, our friend Dr. Chandra Wickramasinghe in Britain, who is an old friend of Arthur C. Clarke, my old friend, and as well as having worked with probably one of the preeminent astronomers of the 20th century, Sir Fred Hoyle. And I said to Chandra, what would you like to say if we do a web show? So we started mapping it out and all that. And then a day or two later, he called me on Skype and he said, "Um, I really can't do it because I'm recovering from COVID and I have no strength. So I thought at that point, well, we can do one or two things. I can go to a rerun. We have tons of extraordinary shows. I even had one of mine that you'll love to hear again. And at some point, we'll just play it again because, you know, you miss things the first time. And, you know, for people that can't afford to join Club 19.5, which is a lot of people now because of the economy, um, sometimes it's just nice to run a show where they can just listen live and not have to pay anything. I mean, we, we try to think of all our listeners. And then I thought, no, that we've had too many because of technical issues and the damn smoke from the forest fires here in New Mexico and, you know, not being able to talk and breathe at the same time and all that nonsense. So I thought, okay, maybe this is an opportunity to do something we haven't really done since I uh, created the show. And that is do three hours of Hoagland in one. So tomorrow night is going to be a very interesting experiment. And I'm going to reveal some things that got me into NASA under contract because, in fact, I was tagged to be, paid to be, the official NASA historian of space astronomy for a while. And that gives me a rather unique advantage to look at the web experience in the context of the much larger NASA experience in lofting telescopes into space, as well as the much longer American experience of building the biggest, most amazing uh, time machines, i.e. telescopes, on the planet for most of the 20th century. And all that's going to be involved with a lot of images, a lot of historical images, some very interesting things that I know you do not know about having to do with America and big telescopes and what they do to the culture and the paradigm and the concept of being an American. And with great pride, we can say that the James Webb Space Telescope is part of that extraordinary heritage, which I bet most of you do not know. And if you don't know it, it is to your detriment. So tomorrow night, For three hours, we're going to have fun regaling you with some background stories, some perspective, and a forecast of where we are going. And in a week or two, depending upon his recovery rate, um, I'm going to get Chandra back and we're going to do what I originally wanted to do because one of the unique things about web is that it basically has a non-discriminatory usage policy meaning you don't have to be associated with a major university or with a foundation or with a nonprofit or a member of the very limited or restricted academic astronomical community to actually put in a proposal to get actual time on the web telescope to look at anything you want. Can't look toward the sun, of course and take data and have it part of a public record of research that is being sponsored by citizen scientists. Now, Dr. Wickramasinghe is not a citizen scientist. He is an accredited professional with decades of experience and all kinds of published papers and peer-reviewed journals and you know all that good stuff of being a member of the club. So one of the things we're gonna do is we're gonna propose with Chandra a public citizen 
private academic science project for web as part of round two. Uh, round one will take about a year, and they're now in a few weeks time they're going to open you know the phone lines the website whatever to file proposals for the second round next year of supreme cutting-edge science from web and dr chandra wickramasinghe is going to propose testing some of the very things he's been talking about ever since he came on the show and obviously long before that the mainstream astronomical community just kind of hasn't gotten around to testing. Remember, all science comes down to can you test it? It's not how wacky and far out and crazy the idea is. It only is supposed to in the, in the extreme, in the theoretically pure area of, of research, it's supposed to only turn on is it a good idea and can it be tested? And of course, if it's tested and proven true, What's it going to do to the human condition? Is it going to advance who we are, what we are, and why we're here, and what we're trying to accomplish? Anyway, that will be part of our discussion with Chandra. Tomorrow night, we're going to have some fun, and I'm going to open the lines in the third hour. And we have some of our regulars who have some things they want to say about web. Um, and then we're going to actually invite callers, as we have for the last several weeks, to just chime in with their favorite things they like to see happen because in this new political era, it can happen. And if it doesn't happen, we have a microphone, a bullhorn as the cliche goes, and we can point fingers directly at why NASA is not living up to what it said it was going to do, which is to include, as part of this roster, a publicly supported, taxpayer paid for 10 billion dollar telescope some of the time is going to be devoted to some of those taxpayers who contributed toward the 10 billion dollars anyway enough of that um tomorrow night you're going to want to tune in because this is a first for me and i don't know whether it can be done on radio it normally takes me or took me about a month to put together presentations when i was doing conferences and and uh you know going around the country and you know, speaking to various groups, um, when Chandra said he really wasn't up to it, I had like two days to put together something, and we're still putting it together. So uh, um, tune in tomorrow night to see if we succeed or fail. <clears throat> I know that sounds crass, but uh, some people like to, you know, root for train wrecks. So if, whatever, you know, whatever gets you through the night, as uh, someone said many, many, many years ago. So item number two. While all this is going on a million miles behind the Earth, as seen from the sun, there is this unmanned mission, this little capstone mission, which is making its way in a very elongated, uh, almost million-mile extended orbit before it loops back to rendezvous and be inserted into orbit around the moon. This private mission, which NASA paid like uh, 30 mil for, to basically check out the orbit, the very unique... Is that kind of a contradiction in terms... I mean, something is either unique or it's not. It can't be very unique. And, oh, don't get me started on language that every mainstream anchor and political pundit and and uh, reporter and whatever is using. And they're using the word so wrongly, and every time they do it, I cringe. I literally cringe. The word is fulsome. Fulsome does not mean complete. It means it's fake. It means it's empty. It means it's puffery. Fulsome praise means the person is not praising the individual. They are basically denigrating him with puffery and nonsense and exaggeration. So the, all the mainstream reporters and anchors and print people are using fulsome totally, 180 degrees wrong. So <clears throat> there, I got that off my chest. It won't do any good, but... Maybe maybe someone will listen somewhere. It really bothers me that we have such literate people out there and they don't understand that a word has been totally corrupted along with a whole bunch of other things. So do not use fulsome to mean complete or thorough or a deep dive or anything approaching real because fulsome means fake, fake praise. Fulsome praise is fake praise. Like, uh, well, we won't go there. 
some people get so upset when I go to certain places, and I'm trying to be sensitive these days, more more sensitive than uh, I have been, and I apologize for not being sensitive sometimes. But uh, anyway, um, so Capstone is successfully headed to the moon. When we get a little bit closer, I'm going to be talking about some of the things that it can do because it is preparing the way for this unique orbit of the uh, Gateway Lunar Space Station, which is to be inserted into this rectilinear halo orbit, orbiting backwards around the moon in a very elongated ellipse that will allow it to avoid uh, detrimental and, in fact, fatal hours-long eclipses of the Earth. And when we get closer and they're about to put it into orbit, we will talk more details, which, of course, is the only way that the Artemis program, which is depending critically on returning to the moon using the Art- the uh, Gateway Space Station in lunar orbit, can actually proceed. The first couple of missions um, are going to not have to use Gateway, but if we are going to be successfully sending astronauts to and from the moon, in coming years and building a lunar base near the South Pole, where a lot of the water is, um, this this capstone mission has got to succeed. And as you know, there was a hiccup. Initially, they lost track of it for over a day, and then they uh, they had a software glitch, so they have told us. They repaired it. It's moving away from the Earth and completed its second uh, mid-course trajectory m- correction maneuver successfully a couple days ago. There'll be another one toward the end of the month, and then they will nudge it into this extraordinary orbit of the moon. And at that point, um, well, we will talk about the details when we when we get there. You know, my, my old cliche, make no wine before it's time. Stolen directly from Gallo. Um, I'm going to skip around. Uh, let's skip number three for a moment. Let's go to number four, okay? Last night, as I'm preparing for tonight's show, a news story suddenly broke, uh, and we're all plugged into media, so I saw it almost immediately. And the headline says of the story, because it's it's linked there in number four, NASA spots bizarre tangled object on Mars and offers no explanation. This is relevant to tonight's show, as you're going to see in a moment. All right, there's the picture taken directly from NASA. Number five, under it, what I did and Ron Gerbron did is we went to the Raw Images website. We combed the site for all the images of what looks like a little kind of tangle of twine, like something that you would, you know, wrap onions in, in a burlap sack. Um, Where does something looking like twine come from on Mars? Well, the first thing is that NASA, unlike with the... uh, little uh, aluminum-shaded uh, uh, cubic thingy that was located not very far away a couple of weeks ago, the so-called shiny object, which Ron found some stunning uh, images of and made the right mosaic that uh, NASA apparently had not wanted to have a see in terms of context. When that was unveiled, the NASA explanation was, oh, it's a part of the thermal blanket from the entry, descent, and landing of Perseverance uh, over a year ago last February. Eh, Okay, that's potentially possible. And now we have something else, which is just within a few tens of feet of that other object, and it's lying there on the ground, and uh, NASA has not offered any explanations so far. But that is really not the story. The real story is that when Ron and I went looking through the archives for the Sol 495 and 496 and 497 and 498, um, we found images on 495. In fact, we found four of them, uh, two HasCams and two NavCams. Those are separate cameras on the rover. So you got four images taken at different times by different cameras. That's called independent confirmation. So this thing is really there. And then we went and looked through 496, 497. And on 498, the uh, Hascams took another uh, set of pictures of the area on the ground right beneath the rover because these Hascams are mounted on the rover. They can't be swiveled or turned unless you literally physically turn the rover. And the rover just sat in one place for several days 
And the reason we know that is because the second set of images are identical to the first set. In fact, they're so identical that uh, Keith said to me tonight, he said, are, are those different images? It looks like someone just took it out. Because when you compare them side by side, which I did in item number five, the remarkably weird tangled twine object in the image on 495 has disappeared in image taken on Sol 498. Remember, Sol is a Martian day, which is about 39 minutes longer than an Earth day. And 39 is twice 19.5. Anyway, um, where did it go? I mean, literally just three Martian days and it's there and it's not there. Well, obviously, the wind blew it away. The wind on Mars. The wind on a planet where the atmospheric density is supposed to be at, at the surface equivalent to 100,000 feet above the Earth. I, I dare you to find a wind at 100,000 feet. I dare you to find anything at 100,000 feet. So no, what this says is the winds on Mars, the atmospheric density, the surface pressure, all of this good stuff that NASA's been telling us for decade after decade after decade, because this little piece of twine, regardless of where it came from, doesn't matter if the rover brought it and dropped it, doesn't matter if it's ancient Martian stuff, the very fact that the wind can pick it up and blow it away and you can do the calculation for how massive it had to be, depending upon whether it's cellulose or it's plastic or it's wire made of copper. Um, you can do the density and then you can do the mass. We know the size. We know the gauge of this thing. We know its dimensions. We, we know how much it would weigh, even under Martian gravity. The winds on Mars should not be in any way, shape or form capable of moving something like that anywhere, let alone blowing it out of frame. Come on. So that, of course, means the real story is not what it is. Frankly, I don't give a damn what it is. It's the fact that it should be sitting there and sitting there and sitting there for the entire time the rover sits there until the rover drives away. The fact that it blew away in the wind, that's my cute little title, harking back to... Uh, a very important Dylan song. The answer, my friend, is literally on Mars tonight, blowing in the wind. Because for there to be a wind that could pick that little thing up like a tumbleweed and tumble it off screen, off stage right, the winds on Mars, the atmosphere on Mars, the density of the atmosphere, the pressure, all of that has to be a lie, another lie from NASA. You know, they talk about the last election and the big lie. If NASA's been pulling the scam that over and over again we prove time and time again with data after data point after data point, if NASA has literally been lying about the, the atmospheric density of Mars, then all bets are off because nothing, nothing can be believed. In fact, this would qualify... I would say, as perhaps the ultimate big lie. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. When we return, Charlie Zeese and a voyage back in time to another set of lies.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for this Saturday night, July 16th, 2022. What you're hearing in the background is a uh, really Ukrainian national anthem. And I kind of play this every show just to remind everyone that on the other side of the planet, a very dedicated people are kind of duplicating what we did 240 plus years ago. They're trying to be free. It's very hard on this planet right now to be free. Before I bring Charlie on, I want to go back to one of my items, which is item number three. Let me get the right screen up here. Live television, live radio, whatever. Okay, um, this is an extraordinary place. It's in Bulgaria. It's called Pobiti Kamani, and this is a tourist snapshot. Uh, we happen to have uh, some folks in the area tonight. Uh, they have been instructed by email courtesy of one of our colleagues and friends to um, go to this place it's not far away from where they are take much better pictures kind of haunt the local museums and see if anybody has picked up interesting stuff because when I first saw this shot and again it comes from uh, Ron Gerbrun who found it and I'm sure Ron will join us in the third hour and talk a bit about the background um, I was stunned because it's a much better image than what we're getting from perseverance and curiosity of extraordinary ancient architecture on the planet Mars. Except this isn't on Mars, it's right here on Earth and anybody can go and explore it. Now, where things get really weird, the standard mainstream explanation for this site, for all those stunning architectural forms, for those pillars, for the background, for the incised rooms, for all the obvious architecture and busts and faces and all the carving and all the amazing stuff you see there, the mainstream word is, it's all natural erosion. I mean, the lie is so deep and so long and is so labored that it gets to the point where you have to ask, what's in it for all those people who cannot literally follow science and figure out and publish the truth? So on that note, let me introduce a citizen scientist, a colleague, a friend, someone that I have been uh, uh, kind of enamored with ever since I found out what he was doing. And I've got one of his gadgets sitting in my living room. and. There's a really intriguing story um, associated with that, which I'll get to in a little while. Charlie Zeiss, <clears throat> no relation to the Zeiss Optical Company, I have to keep saying that, became interested in Russian pyramids in 2016 while watching David Wilcox's wisdom teaching series on Gaia TV. 
Intrigued by the extensive pyramid research compiled by the Russians, he set out to make pyramids for his own and others' experimental and research use. After verifying a number of the Russian pyramid research results and noticing numerous personal health improvements from pyramidal field exposure, and I want to ask you about that because I'm literally sitting uh, either in the living room or the library within 10, 15 feet of this damn thing, and I have for a couple, three years, and I'm wondering if it's the reason that I feel in pretty good condition if it weren't for the smoke, which, thank God, has died away. Anyway, the Russian pyramid geometry became his full-time passion and pursuit. In early 2019, Charlie was able to ascertain the previously undisclosed sacred geometry of the Russian pyramids. His calculations pointed to the sacred geometry being based on universal phi scaling. He was able to confirm his research through direct measurements of photographs of the Russian pyramids, the correlation of the Russian pyramid geometry with the phi scaling angle, and independently developed by author and researcher Marshall Lefteritz and his discovery of the unique geometric correlations between the Giza and the Russian pyramids. Over the past five years, Charlie's been able to locate 76.345 degrees in the architecture of literally thousands of pieces of ancient architecture from civilizations and religious traditions all around the globe, with dates ranging from thousands of years ago up to the present. Charlie is currently the chair of the Pyramid Science Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit research corporation that he created in 2020 to study the health, environmental, agricultural, and material science benefits of Russian pyramids. He recently published 76.345 Russian Pyramids and the Hidden Secrets of the Golden Ratio. He is currently working on additional books on the Russian pyramids and their extraordinary encapsulation of what has been termed ancient sacred geometry. Oh, and by the way, Charlie is a former Wall Street investment banker, we won't hold that against him, and was one of the primary architects of mortgage-backed securities in the 1970s. He received his BA and MBA degrees from one of my old stamping grounds, where a dear friend of mine uh, hung out and taught for many years, uh, Dartmouth College. So without further ado, Charlie, come on down. Hello, Richard. Thanks for having me on tonight. I have been looking forward, as you all know, to this show for weeks, and everything seemed to get in the way. How many times did we have to move your show? Like what, three, four times, something like that? I think, well, at least three, yeah. <laughs> I've lost count. But as they used to say, you know, saving the best for last, I've got to tell you a bizarre story. I mean, it's so bizarre that it deserves to be part of tonight's record. So. Um, here goes, and I don't, if you, if you out there in, in, you know, listener land choose not to believe me, it's perfectly fine because I know what happened. I know my own truth. And I have a feeling that Charlie, uh, kind of understands where, where this could be coming from many weeks ago. I, you, you would, you would sent me an email, what, like a month or two ago on the, on, yeah. on, on the new book. Okay. Yeah. About mm -hmm. three days or two days before your email come in. I mean, I've had, with with your assistance and Laura London's, I've had your pyramid, your big black, very steep Russian geometric pyramid set up in the uh, corner of the living room for the last couple of years. And I periodically put things in it, plants. Um, I put crystals. I put all kinds of stuff to see if the effect is having something that I can actually measure. I even have a, um, a Western uh, chimes clock. Uh, that's not the name of it. Uh, Winston chimes clock. And I've been wanting to put it inside the pyramid to see if like with the Accutron, uh, it would change the actual frequency of the pendulum because of changes of inertia. But because the dime clock is so irregular, that, that experiment I don't think is gonna be very fruitful because those those uh, clocks were not accurate to more than like a minute. And um, 
It also depends on when you wind them. When you wind them, they speed up and then they slow down and, you know, teasing out any kind of pattern with the clock, which was one of my initial experiments, seems to be uh, more problematic. And since I don't have a working Accutron at the moment, I haven't been able to do one of the things that I really wanted to do, which to test the Russian pyramid that you have replicated on a scale that can be put into a large living room. Uh, I haven't been able to duplicate that yet, so that's one of those experiments in progress. But what I did do um, several months ago, maybe like six, eight months, is I took one of Robin's Christmas presents that she gave me some years ago because we would always like try to find very unusual things for each other. And she found this wonderful sealed glass teardrop which sits on a beautiful blonde wood base with a little cutout so that the rounded bottom of the teardrop, which is about eight inches high and maybe five inches wide, and it's like a beautiful crystal, it's iridescent, and inside there is water. I believe it's water. And in the water, there are crystals. And the little promo thing that came with this gift was that even though it was sealed, the crystals would respond to changes in atmospheric pressure and weather patterns. And so when there was a storm coming, the crystals would kind of disassociate and the water would become cloudy. And when the storm had passed and we were under another high, the crystals were supposed to kind of realign and cling to the sides and the, the fluid, the water in the teardrop, this large teardrop would become clear again. So Robin got this, I forget where she got it, and she gave it to me and we set it up and we watched it and we watched it and we watched it and she got very disappointed because it didn't do any of the things that the little brochure that came with it said it was supposed to do. So, of course, Robin died three years ago and I had this sitting like in memory of her on the coffee table um, and I thought one day, I wonder what would happen if I took this sealed, um, you know, hygrometer or, or barometer, whatever you want to call it, and put it in the pyramid. I wonder if the enhancement of the field, if the amplification of the geometry of this of this steep, four-sided open pyramid would have any effect on the crystallization. And I tried to, you know, take notes, and I don't have a camera yet uh, back from where it's being repaired, so I haven't been able to document any of this stuff on film yet or on video, but I will. And so that that experiment's been going on and on, and I make notes, and I'm trying to see correlations, and it's all very fuzzy, and my feeling is that the field is just so weak, even in the pyramid, that it doesn't really, it doesn't really aid and abet the crystallization that the little uh, promo you know, page was, was telling her about when she bought the damn thing so I could see hyperdimensional physics in operation on the coffee table. So it's been sitting there and, you know, most days I forget about it. And if I walk through the living room and I look at it, I think of Robin and I think of the physics and all the places that we went and measured. And anyway, a few weeks ago, like maybe two months, maybe six weeks. I, I don't have the date you know, in front of me. I came out one afternoon, walked into the living room, and the teardrop, which had been sitting untouched on this table, this wooden table, because I'm trying to keep everything wood. You don't want metal involved. It creates uh, weirdnesses in the interaction of the field. So it's sitting on this wooden tray table that's all wood, and it been sitting upright in this beautiful little blonde wood um, holder, which keeps it aligned with the vertical. Except on this afternoon, the teardrop was literally 90 degrees to the local vertical, sitting on its side like an arrow, like a teardrop pointing with the point, and it was pointing into the library at Robin's desk, which is maybe 20, 30 feet away. And there is no way the mice could have tipped it over. There's no way they could have kept it on the table because it was perfectly aligned 90 degrees 
and because of the indentation of the blonde wood uh, stand, if they tipped it or pushed against it, it would have just fallen over and fallen on the floor and fallen on the carpet and hopefully it wouldn't have broken. But no, something had carefully realigned it literally in the pyramid, pointing out the side 30 feet away at the desk that I bought Robin many years ago for her own use uh, as we, you know, while we're putting a household together. And then within hours, literally hours, I got the email from Charlie saying, hey, I've got a new book. Would you like to talk? So, Charlie, how's that for an intro? Uh, that's pretty amazing, Richard. I mean, I am used to amazing things. Robin's been doing this for three years. I mean, three years, and I could use some expletives because I've talked with other metaphysicians. I've talked at great length with Georgia, and I've asked her, I've said again and again, has anybody ever written down the kind of stuff that's happening because Robin is still involved she's still sending information hell she's sending physical objects or rearranging them and i don't expect anybody to believe me i don't give a damn if anybody believes me i'm just here to report the truth and that is exactly the truth so she was very excited charlie because you know she was involved with some of my early work with monk uh she went with me to all these sites we did all these measurements. So the way I interpret it, because the bandwidth between dimensions is so damn limited, you know, it makes a tin can on a string seem like, you know, broadband HD. Um, her message as I got it was, pay attention to Charlie's email. This is important. And when I started reading what you put together, it was obvious that um, she was absolutely right. So where do we want to begin? For those people that have no idea what we're talking about, maybe we should begin in the beginning and we talk about Russian pyramids and their geometry in contrast to the more familiar Giza-type pyramids. I think that's where we should probably pick this up. Sure. Well, you know, Richard, um, when, I, when I got interested in the pyramids, I wanted to build them, and the first thing I needed to know was what the geometry of the pyramids was and that uh, uh, took a little while to really figure out. There were some some um, uh, estimates that were on uh, a website called GizaPyramid.com, uh, which got me very close. But ultimately, when I went to measure <clears throat> the angle with uh, a protractor, I realized that the normal sort of two-dimensional uh, phi relationships, height to base length or something along the, or side length, I couldn't find uh, the phi relation or the golden ratio in that in that uh, in those structures. So what I did, and we'll we can get to that. Uh, I derived the actually by going to if we could, Richard, to slide three, I can show people basically what. I uh, used to to come up with the... Uh, okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. You, you missed number two. Number two is very important because a Russian billionaire, an oligarch, literally spent a oh, lot yeah. of money building these peculiar cone, steep, steep, non-Giza pyramids in the Ukraine. That's important. In Russia, outside yes. Moscow, uh, as far as his money, which is a lot, can take him. He's in all kinds of experiments and what you were trying to do is to back engineer the geometry so you could build them yourself and duplicate independently the extraordinary results that he and his team were reporting. Okay, let's pick up that's number right. three. Yeah, and that's exactly, that's great background information. So what I did, uh, I just, you know, I, I, I knew that most uh, cosmologists said that creation starts inside of a sphere. Uh, the sphere is the most perfect form for, uh, you know, the beginning of, of creation. So I took, this is two-dimensional, but it works exactly the same way in three. Uh, if you look at the bottom circle, this is two-dimensional, but I, I started with a diameter of one, and I started stacking circles on top of each other uh, in such a way that the diameter 
uh, of each circle going upward decreases by phi or 1.618033399. It's an irrational number. So when I did that, I then, I did that about 15 times. You can't see that all in this picture, or in this diagram, but uh, I then put uh, the sides uh, onto the pyramid where it uh, perfectly touched uh, the, the circles. So you, and, so you just made those lines tangent to each of the smaller and smaller and smaller circles from the bottom to the top. That's, that's exactly right. So it's not, you know, it's not a challenging idea, but no one seemingly had done that before. And sure enough, I came up with this 76.345 degree angle. And I, I just want to point out to the audience, because phi itself or the golden ratio is an irrational number, the 345 is as close an approximation as you can get. You, 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 know, you, you might be able to get it more accurate, but you're never going to get it perfect. As we used uh, to say, <clears throat> close enough for folk music. Well, that's right, that's right. So uh, you were asking about the Russian and the Giza pyramids. We can uh, go down to uh, number four now and What's interesting is that the golden ratio shows up in the Giza pyramid and in the Russian pyramid uh, everywhere. But the, ah. the key, the key point, the 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 um, probably the most important point to make for our discussion is to go to the very bottom, and you see that the slant angle of the Russian pyramid is 76.345 degrees, and that goes from the base up to the top. Whereas the apex angle of the Giza pyramid matches it perfectly to three significant digits, and that's at the top. I've I've drawn those with the common base length, uh, and and varied the height uh, based upon that common base length. So right. we see, yep, we see that the the uh, Giza pyramid has this exact angle, uh, but it's at the top. I haven't figured out why that is, uh, but that is one of those unique situations that we need to, you know, I'm going to continue to think about and hopefully come up with. Well, a, I don't know whether we covered this before, Charlie, but I think um, given the example of the so-called Merope pyramids, remember there's this little nation at the mouth of the Nile south of Egypt, which had a... Okay. A separate culture um, back during the time of the pharaohs, and and uh, they they apparently created a whole bunch of pyramid designs, but all of them appear to be kith and kin to the Russian tall, steep pyramids, as opposed okay. to the Giza. And there's one set there which is laid out, and you can literally see they go from Giza to Russian geometry all in a line built side by side over thousands of years and wow, they're okay. and they're in pretty bad condition and if i'd had my wits together i would have uh uh found that i probably during a break can find it and keith can put it up uh, uh in my section as item number six the point is i think what they were telling us and again this is this is where we have to do the measurements that because the physics of the earth the hyperdimensional physics changes over time the one geometry does not fit all you have to have a tuned pyramid resonator with a different geometry to match the physics of the era that you're in as it ratchets up and down and is modulated by the larger background cosmic context primarily the precession of the earth that we're immersed in here on the planet so that's my idea for why the different geometries and why both those geometries in the extreme incorporate the same angle, but in different localities. Okay. All right. Well, I'd love to look at that and, and explore it further. But I just to, to continue, here are three, I, in five, six, and seven, I'm going to show you um, three more examples of of this angle in nature. Oh, okay. Uh, one, number five is the refraction of light. In this in this experiment, 
the, the researcher put a glass sphere inside of the end of a pipe and shone light through it. And when we measure the uh, angle of refraction, uh, we find this exact uh, angle showing up uh, in the refraction or, or the scaling of light. And then six, we can't see sound. But what I find interesting is that when you look at a megaphone, uh, it has exactly the same slant angle uh, as well, showing that, that all sorts of waves in different spectra uh, seem to use this geometry. Wait, wait. Then, you mean all those 1930s movies with um, uh, Ronald Reagan and Ra Ra Sisboomba and the football cheers and all that, the Newt Rockney story, that the megaphone that the cheerleaders are using is of this extraordinary pyramid Russian angle? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's amazing. Yes, yes, yes. Wow. And then, you know, the last one... Um, uh, in this segment uh, is is DNA. Uh, I was able to find a, a, a you know, oh, you're that I was able to, to, to measure, and it seems to um, to, to have this exact uh, geometry as well. So we've got lots of data that you know this scaling process. Just to to go back, Nassim Haramain and others have have. Uh, shown that the universe is scaled in five. Both uh, uh, Nassim and Dan Winter, another researcher, have, have used the same techniques. So uh, uh, we know that this five scaling ratio, you know, uh, is used in nature. And now, you know, in these examples, we see that it's, uh, you know, examples how we can, uh, can see it. So, you know, this, all of this made me realize that this was a very significant uh, geometric angle, uh, and when we come, you know, come back in a few minutes, we'll we'll start to go some through some of these other uh, photos. But what I started to find, I you know, Richard, originally I was going to do this book on the pyramids alone, but once I started to find this in one place, I found it in another, and another, and another, and what I came to the to, to find out was that this geometric angle has been used by cultures on every continent, in every religious tradition, and they date back potentially as far as uh, 350,000 years. Now, that's we can go into that dating methodology, but... Uh, well, that's why know, I brought up the not, stuff on Mars, because, of course, there's multiple... Yeah eras of separate cultures on Mars, despite sure. NASA's determination to ignore anything unusual, like blowing string. I mean, come on. And that place yeah. in Bulgaria, when, when Ron joins us probably in the third hour, I mean, how anybody can look at that and simply wave their arms and say, oh, it's just natural erosion and, and sedimentation from water from a lake. They're nuts. Or they think yes. we are. <laughs> agreed agreed so okay hold so, it there hold it there because we are literally okay. at the uh, uh bottom of the hour okay. i think we're no we're at the top of the hour gosh time does fly when you're having fun my guest this morning is uh charlie zeese and we're talking about the most extraordinary discovery which is that on a planetary scale in cultures all over the planet from all different eras and boy am I going to track down his date of 330,000 years in the past because well that kind of overlaps another place with ancient architecture that got me into all this through what I call the Martian doorway the Sidonia geometry the Sidonia city the city by the face on Mars that NASA to this day is determined to make everybody think is just a trick of light and shadow. Well, numbers are not tricks, and they're not made of light, except in this case, it does seem to be. And we'll talk about what that might imply when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Do not touch that dial. 
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>